Go ahead and pick your speed up your number one now, runway 27, clear to land green dot. Welcome to Oshkosh, guys. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Green Dot, EAA's podcast for anyone and everyone who loves anything about aviation. I'm Hal Bryan, one of your hosts. I'm senior editor for print and digital content and publications at EAA. Next to me on my left. I'm Chris Henry, the EAA Museum Programs Manager. And normally, uh, across the table, we'd have Tom Charpentier laying down some sick beats. <laughs> but uh, we, have a, uh, we have a special fill-in host today, so who are you? I'm uh, Kyle Voltz from Ooh. the Chapter Department. <laughs> Welcome, Kyle Voltz. It's really good to have you here. We give you a hard time, but we're all friends. Uh, and, you know, you and Chris have some peculiar history, so this, yeah, this could that's, be an interesting, uh, uh, an interesting yeah, episode. I lived that's with a, That's a safe way to put it. <laughs> yeah. A safe way to put it. That's the most safe way yes. to put it. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's, that's the last safe thing we're going to do on this episode, <laughs> I think. Now, uh, we have a, a guest today with us uh, in studio again, so it's great to, great to have you here, Jamie. Um, Kyle, why don't you uh, introduce the guy whose name I just mentioned inadvertently? Well, sure. Uh, it's my pleasure to introduce uh, Jamie Pittman, the founder of Discover Flight. He he uh, is a local flight trainer uh, here in Oshkosh, uh, specializes in grassroots stick and rudder training and um, upset recovery and aerobatics. So welcome, Jamie. Hey, thank you for having me. Yeah, welcome to the show. Yeah, it's great to have you, Jamie. So let's uh, let's start the grilling. Um, let's, uh, this won't be easy and it won't be painless. I know. Um, but uh, um, I always, I always want to know... You know, somebody like you, you're involved in, in especially the kind of aviation you're involved in. You obviously have a love for it. You have a passion for it. Take us back to the, the very beginning. Were you a, a little kid looking up at airplanes, wanting to fly, or when did the bug first bite you? Um, it's it's kind of hard to say. Um, my aunt and uncle are in the aviation industry, um, but besides that, they're the only family members. Uh, I took my first ride when I was uh, 13, so I was older than, than you might think. Um, and it, I just kind of fell in love with it with there. I never stopped. I, uh, got addicted to flight sims like every other kid. And, um, as soon as I found somebody to, to take me flying and teach me, it was, it was nonstop from there. That's kind of funny that you're addicted to flight sims and Hal is, uh, <laughs> yeah, I have to ask, were you using Microsoft flight simulator? I was, I was. So that, uh, before I came to EAA, I worked for 15 years at Microsoft and I spent 11 of it on the flight simulator team. Nice. So, um, as Tom will attest, if you ever used any of the ATC features, I worked on a lot of different aspects of the product, but if you ever used any of the ATC features, um, either talking to ATC or using a pilot voice for your own, then you have heard my voice before. Really? Yes. No, I never got into that. I just, that's I, why I get all those nightmares. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I would take all the aerobatic airplanes and, and oh, sure. change the aerodynamic numbers behind them so that oh, they right. performed differently. Entering so, the, uh, editing the air files. I was just, I was that. just a big nerd. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. I was, uh, I was the same big nerd. I just got paid for it. <laughs> Very nicely. I started using that when I was 12 years old uh, in 1980, and it was uh, just green lines on a black screen. Yeah, do the math, Kyle. Knock yourself <laughs> yeah, out over I there. I see that. <laughs> yes, let's see. Carry the one. Hal is a thousand years old. <laughs> anyway, so I, I hated her up, but thank you for uh, for bringing that up, Chris. So, uh, so you took a flight when you were thirteen. What uh, what happened after that? Um, oh, and first, what kind of airplane was it? It was actually a Piper Warrior, oh, um, which cool. is one of the airplanes in my in my training fleet right now. So oh, is it? Oh, it's great. Kind of kind of funny how that came full circle. Yeah, I did my uh, the last half of my private and my instrument in a Warrior. And, Always have a soft spot for the. It was just a. It was a Fourth of July event at my local airport, and the guy was just offering rides, and I had to take him up on it. So, oh, that's very cool. 
Yeah, same here, actually. My first solo was in a, a Cherokee 140 that had a Warrior engine in it, so I really thought it was a hot rod instead of the 160 <laughs> engine yeah. and, and uh, one yeah. Foxtrot Lima. So. <laughs> Mine was a 1557X-Ray. It's amazing you still remember those yeah. numbers, you know. Exactly. <laughs> I don't know my address. I have no idea whether <laughs> yeah. or not I had breakfast this morning. <laughs> but. We don't know how to go home, but yeah. we remember our exactly. first first numbers. <laughs> Well, so, and when was your first experience coming around to EAA, and what, what was your first sort of exposure to the So I came to the I came to the AA Air Academy um, as a camper in 2011, um, and I came back on staff as a counselor for the next three years, so, oh, um, yeah. It's kind so of, how old were you in 2011, so Kyle can do some more math? <laughs> I was 17. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's kind of yeah. neat with the Air Academy's 35th anniversary coming up. I mean, that would be right. uh, yeah. uh, sort of a special uh, year for you here. So It will. That's it will. awesome. Yeah. And so, I mean, I, I know you, but you grew up in a, a unique place with aviation all around you. Um, I did, Tell yeah. us a, a little more about where you spent your time uh, learning how to fly. So I grew up flying in uh, central Georgia um, in Williamson where there was a, an airport named uh, Peach State Aerodrome, um, now um, Alexander Memorial, named after Ron Alexander. Oh, sure. Um, and there was just a, a lot of really cool old vintage airplanes and um, a lot of people that, that really had that in their forefront of their, their mindset, so... That's very cool. How long uh, did, were you born in Georgia? I was. I was. And then how long have you been away from there? Uh, we moved in May, so so not too long. So what happened to your accent? <laughs> <laughs> I tried to get rid of it when I was a kid, actually. Really? Um, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I I, uh, I never really had too much of one, but um, yeah, I, I don't. I never really picked up on the southern accent. So my <laughs> wife uh, doesn't have one until she gets mad at me, <laughs> and then I hear all kind of stuff. You know, that I have no idea what it is. It's right. funny. I'm asked about it all the time, though. A that's couple of my customers have said, "You don't sound like you're from here." So, well, I'm, I'm not, but I, I don't sound like I'm from Georgia either, apparently. <laughs> Excellent. So, what did you do your flight training in when you got started? Um, so, uh, a lady that lived down the road from me, um, Barbara Kitchens, she she started teaching me um, in a Super Cub. Um, in her backyard, she had a little 1,500 foot long grass runway, and oh, very cool. um, we we did some work together. And then I uh, I ended up at Peach State, as I mentioned earlier, um, ended my primary training uh, in a Naranka Champ, um, and that's what I soloed in and and wow. went, went on from there. So, you know, Kyle and I both have a real soft spot for the Champ oh, yeah. <laughs> for years. Wheel in the right spot. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, tell us a little bit about how you decided to start a flight school and what you do now. Yeah, so I never had any interest in uh, in the airline scene or corporate flying. Um, jets and the the bigger airplanes, you know, that they, they never they never grabbed my attention like they they might most people. Um, and uh, the the older I got, um, and after I'd started progressing through some of my licenses, and I I just kind of realized that there was going to be a big need for uh, for a different training scene, you know, more grassroots, down to earth type feel. Um, so I just decided to go out on my own and do it myself because it, it didn't seem like it was being offered very, very many places besides exactly where I came from. So, so and uh, how did you, uh, how did you choose Oshkosh as a location? I'm asked that a lot. Um, <laughs> I think it just stemmed from my experience um, being up here in the summers with EAA. Um, I knew I wanted to move. I wanted to get out of Georgia, um, and I just kind of fell in love with this area over time. So. Um, I knew I was going to start a flight school wherever I ended up, and it it just kind of made sense to do it here. That's very cool. So we're we're really excited there's, since there's not a whole lot of flight training around. Yeah, it is. Uh, I I think sometimes people have it in their minds that you know when you come to, to Oshkosh every summer for convention, 
it's, you know, you show up and it's sort of fully formed. And, and for me, it was always like sort of going back to my old hometown. You know, you show up for one week a year and most people are sort of parked and camped places where you left them. You know where the restaurants are and a few little things have changed and whatever. It's really, really jarring the first time you're here in the off season and it's all gone. Because you, you go home and you, you know it's not the case, but you can sort of imagine that it must all still be happening year round. And, uh, and yeah. you know, it's actually, uh, it, Oshkosh is a pretty quiet it's, quiet a, it's a special place me. for me. It's, it's a special airport for me, even yeah. in the off season. And it's the, the first time I, I set up here and went flying and, and, uh, you know, heard Oshkosh tower on the radio, it just, you know, kind of puts a, puts a smile on my face and it's, it's just different here. Oh, that's excellent. Mm-hmm. Um, were you surprised to learn that the uh, the, the uh, colored dots are there pretty much year round? I was. I actually thought they'd fade or they'd yeah. be removed somehow. Yeah. But but uh, yeah. they definitely need to get touched up here and there. But it is that is interesting. It's like oh, they... it's a good teaching tool for me because oh, I, sure. I don't have to pick some obscure place on the runway. I can right, just exactly. land on the green dot. So this is like that exciting time when you're watching a show and then in the show one of the characters says the title of the show <laughs> yeah. is it land on the green dot yeah that's us <laughs> yeah. might have been strategic or family guy like i have to be superman 4 like, <laughs> <laughs> exactly what i was thinking of and then later he said family guy and, yeah oh, that was fantastic. that's fantastic <laughs> well one of the things i'm really interested in that you do is unusual attitude recovery sure. and i just think that is something really cool because it could actually end up being a life-saving training. Often it is. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that. Um, it, it's it's a it's a type of training that is is not made available as much as it should be. Um, so it's really an access thing. Um, it, it's it's all about taking the airplane and and putting it in a new dimension that that most students have never been exposed to before. Um, and it it really is can can be a lifesaver. Um, it, it takes a lot of the risk factor out of it when you when a student or just any any pilot whether they're seasoned or not knows that they can take full control over an airplane and they've, they've seen all these different scenarios what kind of airplane do you use uh, for that training specifically we can do it in any anything really um, anything that doesn't care if it's upside down um, sometimes we'll we'll start out in the cub and, and just do um, just plain stick and rudder power on and off stalls and turns and, right. and move it in and um, when we get into the full-on upset training and aerobatic courses, uh, we do that in a pits S2B. Oh, okay. So, oh, that's excellent. Yeah. And is there a is there a specific sort of I don't know what the term is. I'm looking for a sort of like a set syllabus where somebody comes to you and says, "I've never really done this kind of thing before, except maybe during my primary training." Sure. So you know, you're going to put me through it, or or do people come and say, "Well, I you know, I." I want to do two hours of this and an hour of that. Or how does it is, it work? yeah, it is totally tailored to you. Okay. Um, there's a la carte training. You can come in and just pay for an, an hour um, if you want. Or we we also have uh, designed courses set up um, to where it's it's laid out on the on the website. It's pretty easy to find that um, there's a, a two and a half hour just plain upset recovery training that will include you know X Y and Z. Okay. Um, or you can come in and say, hey, I've done this before as a student, but I need to work on you know so and so. Right. So it's totally up to them. Gotcha. So I know that uh, aerobatics and upset recovery is, is one of your um, passions, but where, where did that start for you? As a student pilot, um, growing up with the instructors um, that I did, uh, they, they kind of had the, the same mentality that I ended up uh, developing over time. Um, one of my first instructors was a um, retired Navy uh, test pilot. And he would not let me solo if I couldn't spin and roll and loop an airplane. He, wow. just, he just thought it was part of the, the 
basic safety package. I like that. Um, <laughs> I'm just imagining a University 141 school <laughs> yeah, having, having, exactly. this, having the same policy. Totally opposite from hill. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Doug, up and over. Do yeah. some Doug Masters Canyon flying. Yeah. And, uh, oh, man. Yeah. My hero. <laughs> Doug Masters. <laughs> well, you know, I, I thought it was interesting. We had um, uh, Megan uh, Flanagan, a Navy pilot on, and uh, she had mentioned the same thing, that she actually had no idea – all her flight training was in the Navy. When she got out, she was actually surprised to find out that a lot of pilots in general aviation weren't. Yeah, it's it's totally neglected. Like you know, a lot of training outfits. They say if if you can read it in a book, you you must be able to do it in real life, and it's it's just not the way it is. Right. And I'll never forget the first time my first encounter with wake turbulence was in that that Cherokee War. Really? We were talking about I was doing instrument training and was somehow ended up in the traffic pattern at Moses Lake. Uh, between two Japan Airlines 747s. <laughs> and so two 747s and me and Japan Airlines would go over there. It's a big airport in the middle of nowhere with no traffic. So they would do a lot of training over there. And, uh, you know, I remember coming down a kind of medium final and hitting wake. And suddenly, you know, I'm like at 110 degrees bank in this Cherokee and snapping wings level and getting power and going around mm-hmm. and stuff. And, and just thinking, Another what? Another handful of seconds, and I might have just been, you know, right on over. And so Random was, expletives, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so certainly, it was. Um, I was glad for what upset training I'd had, um, and and at that point, I'd done some aerobatics for fun with friends mm-hmm. and everything. But it certainly wasn't anything as formalized as what you're sure. talking about. Sure. See, I wasn't. I wasn't exposed to it. I uh, I did university training, and uh, I was getting ready for a check ride when I uh, entered a stall, not coordinated, and started a spin. And it scared scared me so much that I decided I we were going to do spin training before I before I passed. But nobody else at school wanted to do it. That's so, interesting. Yeah, that's uh, it, it's funny in a way that uh, you know we don't want to dwell on this because it's easy to to uh, to spend a bunch of time saying oh this part of it's really scary and stuff like this and you know and a spin is just another maneuver it's another thing that can happen. It it shouldn't be something that you're scared of. But Kyle, it's interesting to me that that. Uh, You'd experienced it, and it, it rattled you enough to say, to stand up, number one, to stand up and say, i got to do this more until I'm not scared of it, and I know I'm comfortable with it and I can handle it. But the people who'd never done it were the ones who were, who were more scared of it and didn't want to go near it. Yeah, for me, it was just, uh, if I can't control it, I don't like it. And so yeah. it was a It's funny, it was that's, that's, that's the way a lot of student pilots feel, but as, as somebody that, that also gives aerobatic rides, um, that's always one of the, the clients favorite things to do or, or spins Isn't that interesting? um it's just the, the general public not maybe not knowing exactly what's happening you know physically right they're always thrilled about it um but but the ones that know what stalls are the right. ones that are scared it's, it's strange well it's this thing that we just that uh um you know and i've seen instructors who do you know kind of shy away from even you know they always worry about overdoing stall training and things like there's that. There's no such and, thing. Yeah, exactly. You know? I would agree completely. There's no such thing as doing too much of that. You practice it, practice, practice. So it's it's not it's something you respect and it's something that you will never let happen inadvertently, but it's something you know how to how to deal with when it does. Yeah. Well it sounds like you've flown a good variety of different aircraft. What are some of your favorites or what are some of the ones that really stand out for you? That's that's hard to say. Um the 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 pits has to be one of my favorite general aviation airplanes right now um it, it's it's the most honest airplane out there um looking back in the past i've flown anything from cubs to barons to i have time in a dc3 oh, um 
Curtis Robin. I mean, just Ooh, just where right. I where I came from. It's, it's again, that's just kind of kind of where all this started, and um, they were just endless um, vintage airplanes. And I'm really fortunate to to have come from the area and known the people that I did. So within uh, within reason, um, what's a I mean, nothing nothing extinct, but what's a type out there that you haven't flown that you would really really like to? That's a tough one. Yeah, I could narrow it down I mean, to my top like five hundred. I could be but, cliche. Uh, that's just, that's and the <laughs> pilot's worst yeah, question to ever get. Nobody ever wants yeah. it. <laughs> I mean, I could say P fifty one, but I think I'd lose respect for that because that's everybody's answer, right? There's nothing. There's nothing wrong with that. And you know, I've had the yeah, chance. List, um, I, I've known people that that had them, and it, yeah. it just somehow never happened. So, it's it's a tough one, though. So I, I know you've flown with some some unique and interesting people. Um, is there one or two people that stick out in your mind? Is is somebody you either you look up to a lot or learned a lot from? Yeah. Uh, first of all, um, that the the first one that that goes back to some of the core values of all this would be Ron Alexander. I know I mentioned him in the beginning with with the airport I came from, but um, I, w- I would see him at the airport and in, in the beginning when I was younger, I I had no idea who he was. And um, as I grew up flying, I just I realized how much of an icon he was and how much he contributed to to vintage aviation and and even EAA. And um, as I continued flying, I I got to fly with him a lot and and he taught me a lot and I just grew to really respect him. So um, and. Uh, most recent, um, besides that, would would be um, Patty Wagstaff. Um, I knew that that I, I needed to go see somebody that that um, had a really deep uh, competition aerobatic background, and um, you know, still still offered uh, that private mentorship as well, just having a public you know um, air show circuit presence. And um, I, I would like to start flying competition soon. So um, earlier last year, I went to see her and. Um, so, so that would be a, a memorable experience. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Are you uh, looking to do competition in the in the pits? I am. I haven't gotten to yet. Uh, the first uh, competition next season, uh, or I guess this coming season, is Sebring. So, oh, right. um, so I'll go and fly that competition. I'm, I'm excited to do that. Oh, that's very cool. You yeah. have to report back. Let us know how it goes. We'll do. We'll be following, uh, following the results. So uh, in your fleet, we've talked about uh, you've got a uh, Cub. I do. You've got the pits, uh, the S2B. It's an S2B. S2B. Yep. Um, you mentioned the Cherokee. Cherokee Warrior. Yep. Is that the whole fleet, or is there? A, a, right, right now, that's it. Yep. So it's that's the a, Pitts Cup and the Warrior. So, so when uh, um, when somebody comes to you, you do primary instruction I do. as well. I do. So, uh, what do you start them in? I would always push somebody to start in the Cub. Um, I've flown with a lot of people. Um, that was the right answer. That was the right answer. Yeah, I've flown with a lot of people, and, and just from my experience, even the ones that are brand new or the ones that have been doing it for 50 years, it's, right. you can tell what they started in um, and, 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 and it, you know, at least what they got in early on. If they have an ETA wheel experience, they, they fly differently. Right. They, they act differently. It, it's just um, there's something about it that, that it just totally shapes you as a pilot. So I would always push for that, but it's, it's up to them. If they don't have any interest in tailwheel, I'm not going to I'm not going to be mad. But sure. Um, You're not going to fold your arms and say, I do not want you as right, a customer. Right. <laughs> Take your yeah. business elsewhere. So, <laughs> so typically, typically what we do is start them out in the Cub and then transition them into the Warrior right. after they get some some uh, primary skills down. Would they solo the Cub? Um, currently, no, um, but that's not off the table. Okay. Um, I, I, yeah, I don't. Uh, the Cub is not publicly offered for solo rentals. Oh, sure. Um just because of the nature and, um, yeah. you know, we have liability thing. Insurance but, challenges. Right. Like that. Um, but if, you know, if, if a relationship 
um, comes up with, with a customer and, and there's that, that trust and, and uh, skill and time built after a while, then, right. um, then we can look into that option too. I've, I've just always been curious about, uh, about that because, you know, it seems to me that, uh, you know, somebody who starts in a cub and certainly like, you know, was happening 60, 70, 80 years ago, you see pilots starting from nothing and soloing a cub in the same amount of time or even often less than we might see today in somebody starting in a 150 or 172. Right. And yet you can take a, you know, a couple hundred hour private pilot who's just flown tricycle and they're still going to need a good 10 hours or something or more, yeah. to, or more to be comfortable mm-hmm. in a cub. Um, and that's always fascinated me that it seems like that it's because it's not, it can't be like magically that much harder if you start from nothing. And the airplanes haven't changed. Uh, yeah, that's, I, that's the, the only the, the only variable is us. Um, right. I, I just I think the the methods of training have, have changed. Sure. Um, just the the overall um, outlook of it. Do you think? And I'm not trying to to cause a, put forth any kind of elitism here. I mean, we joke about it, but you know, we're we're uh, most of us around here kind of died in the wool, and we. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, vintage airplane types and things and sure. love tail draggers. But, but that sort of kidding aside, do you think, um, being a comfortable tail wheel pilot makes you a better pilot all around? I don't think that would be a reach. Yeah. Okay. I, I would agree with that. All right. Do you have a special, like, do you have a favorite maybe step in the process of getting people that are licensed to, you know, maybe it's the moment that you first sort of feel that they're catching on to what you're teaching them or is there any sort of moment that you're like, you kind of take back, like, man, I'm glad I'm doing this. Yeah, I mean, I, I really enjoy the times that when I when I see myself in a student um, back early on, you know, watch, watching them grow from, you know, maybe maybe having a fear of something or not catching on to something to, to finally, you know, latching on to a concept and, and succeeding and, um, you know, making those judgment calls for themselves and um, just kind of envisioning what somebody might become in the industry, the, the changes they might make or, or how, you know, I or somebody close by may have influenced that within them. I know we talked about uh, you're looking forward to competing this year. Yes. Um, and it, is there anything else we should look forward to from from Jamie or from Discover Flight? Any big plans? Um, the main plans are really just expansion fleet um, or fleet expansion. I mean, um, and, and service expansion. Um, uh, we're about to uh, launch some emergency maneuver programs, um, and uh, as as we grow, everything else will grow. Um, uh, like I said earlier, right now the the Cub is not soloable, and the, and the main reason for that is it's my first airplane and kind of my baby, and it's it's hard to it's hard to let the public come in <laughs> off the street, and it's the flight school is technically just kind of borrowing it from me. Um, but uh, we're looking to get uh, another small tail wheel um, that I'll be a little bit more loose on uh, for people to come in and rent. And um, so, yeah, I think there's just going to be growth in, in pretty much every area um, over you, the next year. You mentioned uh, emergency maneuvers. Are we talking more upset training or is there something so, more specific around yeah, that? Yeah, one, one thing that I kind of see the need for is um, a, a lot of pilots um, – end up getting rusty by accident because, you know, over time they, they think that they're seasoned or they, they might have, you know, 20,000 hours and they, they no longer need to do student pilot practice type things. Right. Um, so right now we're, we're working on a program um, that would be people coming in and doing nothing but um, engine failure, smoke in the cabin, um, electrical failure stuff, uh, flight control failures, um, just just anything you can think of and just, just kind of run them through the middle of emergencies and, and just 
remind them that they're not invincible just because they have, you know, a quadrillion hours. And so I've always, uh, I've always said, I think that one of the biggest lessons you can learn in, in flight training is, uh, is two parts. Number one, it can happen to you. Of course. And number two, uh, the training works. It does. So as long as you, it as long does. as you pay attention to it. And it that's does. A, I, I had my first very gratifying lessons to learn, but I had my first problem when I was a student pilot. Um, and, uh, I can imagine that if my first instructors didn't instill that those types of things in me, that it, it might've been handled differently. Right. Yeah. One of the things that, uh, I remember back in when we were in flight school in college was, um, and I have no idea, but I always sought value in this was that especially if you were going to go on to want to fly in like the airlines or, sure. you know, for hire, that um, there was something to be said for learning to fly in an environment where you had all the different weather conditions because, you know, you go on to fly in maybe an airline or something, you're not going to just be flying necessarily in warm weather. You're going to have to fight. Right. You, know, you have to consider de-icing and things like that. Do you see that as any value here of actually learning how to fly in some cold weather ops as well as warm? I weather? do. I'm learning myself within the last six months. <laughs> I, you know, I, I, I grew up in the South. Um, I, I came here and I started asking myself questions. Um, and uh, I, I kind of had to shape myself up a little bit too on, on cold weather operations and um, just some of, the, some of the weather phenomenon here that, that I might have not experienced. You know, I, d- I didn't only fly in Georgia. I've flown all over the country, but uh, in more um, acute time frames. Um, so now that I'm, I'm living here, it's, there's, yeah, I, I think there's a big advantage. Um, I, don't, I don't think anybody should ever close themselves off to one particular training environment. Um, like, you know, beach flying weather, there's there's a lot of flight schools like in, in Florida along the beach and all they see is sunny weather and pop up thunderstorms. So yeah, I would agree. Do you have uh when you're working with a primary student, I mean obviously based here in Oshkosh, you're operating out of a controlled airport. Philosophically, do you have a, a a preference for students either learning it controlled versus uncontrolled? I've been battling with that myself. Um I used to have an, a different opinion. I would always say, you know, you, you need to learn how to fly in some random grass backyard in the middle of the woods to, right. to only be able to focus on you and, and the, the airplane. Um, but I, I've, I've changed my, I've shaped my opinion differently a little bit on, on that in the last couple of years. Mm. Um, from my own personal experience, um, I was not comfortable with uh, talking on the radio to any type of controlling facility until I was a commercially licensed pilot. Um, because I came from such a, a, you know, backwoods type environment. Um, so that, that was a struggle for me. And, and so I can definitely see the advantage of having the best of both worlds and, and, you know, Oshkosh, even though it's a a class Delta, it's, it's pretty low key most of the year. So, um, except when it's the busiest airport in the world, right. All the rest of the time, (laughs) it's most definitely not. I think we're planning on shutting down for, for that, that week. (laughs) Probably Uh, a good goal. And of course I'm, I'm looking at Chris, you're talking about being nervous about talking to controllers because that's his background. uh, I like to make people nervous talking to me. (laughs) That's the, that's the one part of the old job you never gave up. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Still, uh, still nervous, uh, nervous talking to you. Well, that was something that actually, I used to get sent out to talk to people about, uh, from the tower. They would actually send me to local EA chapters, smaller airports. Um, about not being intimidated to come over and talk well, to us. Well, now it seems silly for me, and it's, it's I'll tell students. I'm like, they they work for you. You know, without you, they wouldn't have a job. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So that, got pretty that, boring when there's no airplanes right, around. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and, and most of them, I can't say all of them, most of them are not sitting there with a clipboard, like, keeping score, no. and saying, oh, you said five instead of fife. You know, we're going to shoot you down now. Yeah, <laughs> no. Something. That, 
just yeah, when there's no airplanes, you just you know, lawnmower, you're cleared to cross the runway. I mean, that was about it. So it's yeah. pretty exciting. that or just go to sleep, you know, like some places. Oh, but, you know. <laughs> well, that's nice right to hear. there ladies and gentlemen our nation's finest controllers I'm joking. <laughs> where'd all these planes come from <laughs> right. i should point out that chris is no longer an air traffic controller let's be really clear about that he's safely ensconced in the museum we hire actors to go in and play uh play museum visitors he gives tours exactly you know they smile it's all it all works out everybody's safe and happy uh, I just touching me very quickly on that sort of control versus uncontrolled sure. thing. Um, I've just found when I've uh, talked to other pilots over many, many years that uh, especially, you know, student pilots or, or brand new private pilots, they seem to be just a little bit nervous about whichever one they didn't do. Yeah. You know, if you started a towered airport, then then you, you go to an uncontrolled airport like, oh, my gosh, who's going to tell me what to do? Right. And I've and actually then, I've flown with a couple of people lately that we've we've uh, flown to an uncontrolled field and they've had yeah. no idea what to say yeah. or what yeah. to do. So, I mean, I'll, I'll always expose them to everything because sure. I, I never want anybody to get used to, you know, their their one safe right. place. Type. Well, and it is uh, it is amazing to me how quickly, um, you know, for student pilots, so much of what we're trying to impart seems so ridiculously complicated and at the beginning. And it's 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 amazing to me to watch people start to take it in, start to grasp sure. it, and then you yeah. realize, um, you know, you mentioned the twenty thousand hour pilot. Okay, doesn't uh, you know he's forgotten quite a few things, but for the most part, I, he, people have learned an amazing amount uh, once they hit that first, you know, that first there those milestones with solo and private and things like that, and it's always uh, that's got to be exciting to watch. Um, just you know, from your point of view, sitting in the sitting in the right seat, yeah, or in the back seat, it is. So, back seat, front seat. I'm trying to picture all the airplanes here. Really, uh, so yeah, Fr- front seat or right seat, yeah. Is it front seat or right yeah. seat? Yeah. And so in the pits, the S2B uh, student would fly. I, fly yeah, I back. wasn't even thinking about that. No, I, I do. I remain in the back you seat. You remain in the, the back pits. seat. For yeah. that one. Yeah, sure. That, that's a that's a, a load of an airplane to handle for. Uh, for the seasoned guy, so I yeah. I don't want to put anybody under that much pressure. Right. Yeah. I've never flown a pit, so I've had a little time in an Eagle. It's probably the closest, I won't say equivalent, but the closest thing. I think and it's pretty safe to say they're they're the hardest general aviation airplanes to fly. Yeah. Yeah, it was definitely close, a, close to it. Definitely a handful in a you know yeah. 400 degree per second roll rate or whatever it was. <laughs> just <Yeah>. just absolutely, <laughs> absolutely nuts, no, but no. fun. Even now, every time I take off, my hands get sweaty because I know I'm going to have to yeah. land it. <laughs> <laughs> I know that your advice is always um, upset recovery or, or spin training, but is there any other piece of advice you'd uh, impart upon either, either a pilot going to brush up their skills or a student pilot um, looking to learn something particular? Is there anything you'd, you'd recommend for them? Uh, just to find somebody they trust um, and to find somebody they might have a relationship with and um, in an airplane that's capable and, and just go and push themselves. Um, I st- I'll, I'll go out with people and work with them and and uh, I'll even go out on a lesson with myself sometimes and um, say, okay, you know, what, what do we need to do? Um, and, and just kind of brush up and, you know, there's the, the cliche that a good pilot's always learning and that, that holds true for, for everybody no matter how experienced they are. Absolutely. 
So now are, is Discover Flight, and forgive my ignorance here, are you sure. currently sort of a, a, a one-person shop or do you have other instructors that work with you? Not quite. The winter um, is, is slow here. Sure. Um, so right now it's it's uh, me and I have somebody that's doing maintenance for me. Okay. Um, in the springtime, uh, we're going to bring in a few instructors um, okay. when the primary training picks back up. Um, but but so far this season, um, it's it's really been people coming in from out of town. Uh, I've had people come in to do uh, aerobatic training from uh, California, Indiana, um, Michigan. Um, just they, they come in from all over, and I handle that type of thing. Um, but when the primary training picks back up this coming season, we'll we'll bring other people in for that. Excellent. Yeah. So, gotta ask uh, the cliched Piper Cub off the grass. Is that still your favorite uh, kind of flying? Oh, of course, you think? of course. Yeah. yeah, that'll never change. If I had to sell everything I owned, every, it, the cub would stay. Yeah. That's, that's yeah. I love how there wasn't even like a pause. For yeah, him. there was right. just. No. Yep. You don't have to yep. think about that's, that yep. one. Yep. <laughs> I always loved. We went to a bunch of different air museums a couple well, about a year ago, and there's all these massive warbird collections we went to. And as the hangers were stacked, you always saw that like the cub was like right up by the front. Like that was the <laughs> yeah. plane that. They used every day that yeah. that was the one that they wanted. And every to fly time somebody day. walks in the hangar, whether they are just family that's coming with a renter or they're coming to fly themselves, they they go straight to the cub, <laughs> and they, they want to take pictures with it, and it's just kind of a it's an icon. It's an iconic airplane. Yeah. So I'm going to be a real jerk now, and uh, <laughs> um, so you uh, you did training in a champ, uh, an airplane I deeply love. Now you own a cub. Are you firmly cub over champ or? Do you still have uh, a little Aronka love left in you? Where do you Ooh. fall in that debate? Wow. Ooh, talk about putting and then somebody this, on the spot. Yeah, yeah. after this, it'll be uh, politics, then religion. Right, right. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Those will be easier. Yeah, yeah. they always are. <laughs> um, both of them do things better than the other, um, just depending on what you're talking about. I, th- I think in general... He's jumping straight to politics. No, 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 no. no. Yeah. no I'll, I'm going to answer your question. Yeah. I'll be straightforward. Uh, the Champ is a better flying airplane, um, in my opinion. Um the the cub flies like crap. They always have. And they always will. Um, but I'm gonna get some letters. You're, no, <laughs> you're sitting. But but I mean, I wouldn't express my love for it if if I didn't truly love it. Right. You're you're in an airplane that that you know has the history that it does. Um, that it it truly is like you said earlier. It's an iconic airplane. And um, but just speaking about flight characteristics, um, uh, ground handling and taking off and landing, and I I would prefer the cub. But if I'm just going to be cruising around, the, the Champ is a better flying airplane. But and Champ certainly has has it beat in terms of visibility, especially if you're sort of yeah. flying from the yeah. front and all those sorts well, of things. Well, visibility's out the window with some of the other stuff I'm flying, so it doesn't really matter. Well, that's <laughs> true. Yeah, let's talk about visibility in the pits for a minute. Yeah, yeah, go I, from that to I might as well be something like that. <laughs> I might as well be blind. Right. Yeah. That's amazing. Well, it's funny to me. You you know, you basically, okay, the Cub flies like crap, but there's um, – We've, we've talked about grassroots aviation. We've talked about tailwheel flying and all these things. And, uh, you know, comments about somebody starting from zero, sort of notwithstanding and being able to solo, solo in just the same amount of time in tail dragger versus tricycle gear. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one of these things that sort of on paper, it's, uh, you know, a tail dragger is harder and has these habits and has these things. So it's it. It, it should be the sort of thing where we just say, well, just everybody should just fly tricycle gear because that's uh, because that's easier. But uh, I'm not even sure where I'm going with this other than to say, you know, number one, I obviously I disagree. Number two, for me personally, there's something that's always more satisfying about tailwheel flying. Yeah. And and I guess if, if you're out there, if you're listening and you haven't done either of these types of flying or you're, you've flown tricycle gear, you've never flown a tail dragger, um, 
I've never found a perfect analogy. I can kind of come up with something like maybe driving a manual transmission. That's just car. what I was about to say. It, and for me, it's 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 more fun because I feel like I'm doing something. Exactly. When You're I'm, more connected to the when experience. I'm, when I'm flying some trainer that they've made millions of, um, just just the, the basic, the, the nose wheel trainer, I don't feel like I'm doing anything. Um, and that that's probably because I'm so used to flying harder airplanes. Sure. But to somebody that doesn't know any better, they, they might think their job is just as hard because right. they don't have that other experience. Yeah, so I don't, I don't want to say tail drag. The majority of tail draggers out there, I wouldn't say are harder, but they're different. And if you don't know how they're different, you, I mean, you, it, it would be hard to say for yourself. See, to me, it's like a tricycle and a bicycle. Anybody can ride a tricycle, and then uh, just about everybody can ride a bicycle, and uh, it just takes a little bit to learn it. It's a lot harder to stick baseball cards between the spokes <laughs> of the wheels. So, <laughs> so the way I've explained it to people in the past is if, if you learn how to fly in a difficult tail-dragging airplane, you can probably hop into the majority of other airplanes out there without any training at all. Um, I should probably throw a disclaimer in there, but it, and just and just go and be fine. But if you if it's the other way around, you might not be so easy, you know, and that might not come as easy to you. That's excellent. Very well put. All right. Well, we are getting up against the clock. So, Jamie, thanks so much for oh, joining thank us you. today. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Kyle, thank you very much for uh, for sitting in as our as our pretend Tom today. Yeah. My pleasure. Um, do Not you, uh, is there anything that you, you don't think you should say, or do you want to lay down a sick beat <laughs> yeah. before we wrap this no, all up? No, I'm not going to lay down a sick beat. Uh, yeah, I, I think you, I think you did it with the, the champ versus the cub. I was, <laughs> yeah. I was getting a little nervous yeah, there for a second. And like I said, you know, part two of our interview with Jamie is politics and religion. Yeah. So um, if I see a loss in revenue, I'm, I'm going <laughs> to come straight <laughs> no. to you. Yeah. We can talk <laughs> politics and it would actually get less heated than champ. Yeah, it would be way, right, right. Would get way less heated. <laughs> well, that's the kind of hard hitting journalism we do on this show and so we don't pull any punches oh you asked the tough questions (laughs) that's right well folks thanks as always for listening thanks uh, to everyone out there who takes the time to leave us a review give us some feedback either on those blog posts that we put out or in itunes google play all those places you can always uh, send feedback to uh, editorial at ea.org or feedback at ea.org we really love to hear it the, the good the bad and the other and uh, it just it means a lot to us to know that people are listening and uh, let us know what you want to hear and how we're doing. So that's, uh, that's how we measure, uh, measure this whole crazy project. Uh, big thanks, uh, as always, even though I, I forget about two-thirds of the time, to uh, our producer and editor and scheduler guy, Ty, who's uh, he, he's no Sarah, but he does, uh, he does just fine. <laughs> we love you, Ty. Thanks for editing this part out. <laughs> <laughs> or leave us, it in. Brings us the freshest of spring water. Yes, yeah. he does. Brings us water. Yeah. Um, I was going to say all the other things he does. He pretty much just brings us water, but it's great. <laughs> yeah. He plugs in the microphones. He does all yeah. those things. So anyway, folks, thanks again for listening. And with that, we'll see you next time when you're cleared to land on the Green Dot. <laughs>